You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. I hope you're doing well. If you have any questions for me, they are more important than ever as the new format is based on your questions. So consider sending them through the website. That is the main website, NowhereToRunRadio.com, or really any of the other websites, AncientAliensDebunk.com, BibleProphecyTalk.com, whatever. All the emails go to the same place. Or you can do so through Facebook. That's Facebook.com slash run. although I'm not as good as getting to Facebook messages as I am through the emails. So uh, very quick show note. I should have a video coming out later today about the gospel. Um, I'm going to be uploading that on a um, new backup channel, so I hopefully will give a link there that you could subscribe to the new backup channel when that comes out. I think I'll probably try to put it up in 15-minute parts on the old channels as well. Um, it is the presentation that I did while in Africa, but it's a, it's about a 45-minute um, program about the theology of the gospel. And I, I think it's a really interesting way that uh, it's been done uh, through the help of a friend. We have put together a PowerPoint presentation where it's just almost verbatim. Like everything that I say is there on the screen. And I think it's just a really interesting way to absorb a very complex issue. You may have heard it before. I've played it on the podcast before, but I encourage you to to search out the video if you are inclined to learn more about the theology of the gospel. And the point that I make in the in one of those sessions is that you can never, you know, learn all there is to know about the gospel. We should never think that we have learned the gospel. So now we move on. There is so much to know about it. So. Look for that uh, video coming out either today or tomorrow. So let's just jump right into question number one. So the first question is perhaps a two-parter. We'll see how long it takes me to answer it. But it's about the charismatic movement and speaking in tongues or the gifts of, uh, you know, the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's just first take... The idea of the charismatic movement. People have been asking, a lot of people have been asking about this and, and wondering if it's, you know, what, what, what the deal is with it. Now, we have to be careful when we call something the charismatic movement, because I know that's sort of a proper name now and is often used to refer to these folks, you know, that are just doing what I consider to be uh, nearly blasphemous things. That is to say, the, the the Crowder guy with the saying that you get drunk off the Holy Spirit and and getting high off the Holy Spirit and that whole thing, that's a different thing. That's separate from the Bible and anything else. If that's what we're calling the charismatic movement, then of course that's obviously bad. Um, but the the word charismatic comes from the Greek word charisma, just essentially means. Uh, the anointing or anointed it's, it's sort of synonymous with spirit so the spiritual movement and the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, this question often is is sort of also asking are the gifts of the Spirit for today there is a belief in the church that there that we don't experience the gifts of the Spirit anymore uh, today that 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 belief is called cessationism the belief that they have ceased uh, the belief that they have ceased and the 
there are a lot of issues to talk about here. This is a very complex issue. But I think that if that we first of all the gifts of the spirit they these are things that are spoken of all throughout the New Testament. They are things like speaking in tongues or the gift of prophecy, the gift of healing, um these kinds of things that are miraculous basically. Though some of them are not necessarily obviously miraculous. For example, like the gift of teaching, there's one called the gift of helps. You know, these things uh you know, exhortation that is encouragement of people and things like that. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives that one could desire and ask for, ask God for, uh, that would help them in their personal ministry or to edify others or what have you. That's sort of the nature of the spiritual gifts is that they can be uh, petitioned. A saved person can ask God for these various gifts and God will give them. They are gifts that God gives them to uh, a person if they ask for them. Um, sometimes if they don't ask for them. So my answer to this question about cessationism and the charismatic movement is kind of complex, and it's somewhere in the middle. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff in the so-called charismatic movement that is that is obviously not true and bad. Probably the, the names that you would throw out to be associated with the quote-unquote charismatic movement are all completely heretical, basically, insane and doing things that are not biblical whatsoever. And one might even go so far as to question the nature of the spirit, if there is in fact any spirit uh, that is encouraging them to do some and say some of the things that they do. Um, however, I am worried because at the same time, the if we saw the plain and humble church uh, in the book of Acts and the letters of the apostles, if we saw that church operating today um, with prophesying and, and speaking in tongues or what have you, or healing people and, and all these things that they did, miraculous things, I'm, I'm afraid that we would call them the charismatic movement and label them as devil worshipers, which we need to be careful for because that's essentially what the Pharisees did when Jesus said they were committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus casted out a demon and they said, well, you cast out a demon with the power of uh, Beelzebub, and he says, "No, no, don't say that, because it, this this power is the Holy Spirit." Now, I I don't want to wax too theological about the um, the the unforgivable sin and, and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we'll do that in another question. It's a good one, but I don't think it's I I, I don't think you've committed it if you said somebody in the charismatic m movement is. Uh, is a devil worshiper or doing it by the power of, of, of Satan. And I would even say that there are some instances where that is occurring out there. Uh, that is to say it's demonically manifesting stuff out there that, that is almost certainly happening out there somewhere and, you know, and is getting called the Holy spirit. So, but I would just say based on that thing with the Jesus and the Pharisees there that we need to be careful how much we throw that around and who we point fingers at. We need to be at least have a little bit of fear of God in us when we when we start saying, oh, they're doing that by the power of bills above. Nevertheless, uh, here's the issue that 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 you can't prove anything like the, the gifts of the spirit have ceased from the Bible. You can't find a verse that says this. Is, you know, there's no doctrine that you can teach that says, look, cessationism is is the way to go. Um, the entire thing is based off one big elephant in the room is that we in America don't see a bunch of miracles. And I'm not saying we don't see any, 
I know that we see some. I mean, I've done you know videos, testimonies of people that have experienced a lot of miracles. I've experienced miracles in my life. I'm sure a lot of people out there have in their lives too. They they happen. Um, but here is the problem: is that you know here's a good biblical example of it. Jesus said in his hometown that not a lot of miracles could be done there. He didn't say none. He said not a lot of them could be done there because of their lack of unbelief. Now, that's that goes to show you that there can be a geographical limitation on miracles based on the corporate belief of that place. And and I think that even in America, though we believe and we are Christians, or at least a lot of us that call ourselves Christians are Christians, um we don't have a lot of faith that God can actually do this stuff. And one of the reasons we don't have faith is because we've never really had to rely on him that much, if at all. Um, and quite frankly, the reason is, is because we can write a check when things go bad. You know, we're all kind of rich compared to everybody else in the world. And we never really find ourselves in a situation where our kids can't eat and there is no alternative like you know a lot of folks in Africa or other places might find themselves in a situation where there is no doctor I there is no way to fix this there is no insurance there's no nothing I have no options on the table except for God uh, that is I think the kind of stuff that you see a lot of in the Bible and I think that's why you know, missionaries and everybody else. In fact, a lot of the stories of miracles that I've heard have come from missionaries. That is because you see it a lot over there because there is a desperate need for God over there. Um, we, in our richness and prosperity, it's very difficult for us to, to need God and therefore have any faith in the first place in him because we could, you know, well, hey, yeah, we really could use a healing, but, you know, we'll just go to the doctor instead. And look, I'm all about the doctors and stuff like that, but I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that we do. We look to the doctors first and God, you know, can tag along there if he wants, but we're going to the doctor. And, and I'm not saying that's bad. I, I'll, I'll do that, you know. I mean, that's just where we're at, and I'm not saying it's bad or worse. Uh, I'm just saying that's how we are we don't really trust God and therefore we're not seeing a bunch of miracles. I think that is not just the medical stuff, but on financial stuff and, and, and everything. I think that for that reason, one of the best things that America, that can happen to America in a sense is that if all this stuff that everybody's been pseudo prophesizing about, you know, happens and the economy collapses and it's a crazy, uh, destitute place here in America, if that awful prophecy comes, and I say prophecy, it's just, it's not even a prophecy, of course, but it's just what people are saying is going to happen, predicting is what's going to happen, then then it would be good for us as Americans because perhaps for the first time we could need God and God could be like, hey, I've been here the whole time, haven't heard from you in a long time. And I know that we, of course, pray when things get really serious and somebody gets cancer or, you know, whatever happens. And that's usually when we see God work. I, I wrote down one time, um, you know, I was trying to write down all the times that I'd seen God really move in my life. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. And, you know, I had about maybe seven or eight times that were just unmistakable things that definitely were amazing miracles in my life that had happened that I could have no other explanation for except that was God. I was doing it for the, and I think it's a good thing for people to do to kind of have that 
thing like the Israelites could look back and say, look, he definitely parted the Red Sea. That was like not going to happen by itself. And that rock that split in the middle, after, you know, that wasn't like an accident and all this stuff or whatever. The pillar of cloud, they could say a lot of stuff in their book. And I had those kind of things. But when I looked back, I was surprised that all those things were times of extreme desperation and therefore extreme and extended prayer on my part. They all had that same characteristic. They were desperate need and prayer. And that's when I saw the miracles. So I think that, so we have built a doctrine, those that believe in cessationism, which is not a terrible amount of people, but a lot of people do. Um, uh, That doctrine is based off the fact that they aren't seeing any miracles. So miracles don't exist. And that's about as deep as it gets. Sure, they'll try to put a theological argument about it, but you really look into what they're saying versus what the other side is saying it's a no-brainer there's no real good reason to believe that cessationism is true in my opinion so in other words to kind of sum up what i think about the quote-unquote charismatic movement sure these people like david crowder if that's his name the guy who's always smoking holy spirit joints and getting drunk off the holy spirit that that stuff obviously is completely bonkers um, but if you see people that are believing in, don't, don't be mad at people or put people down for believing that the gifts of prophecy are, are real or that somebody can, can pray and heal you. Don't, that's not a scary thing. That's a Bible thing. And that's the power that when the early Christians in the book of Acts were walking around and they had just experienced Pentecost. Okay. That was like a big deal. That was like the difference between, Peter before and Peter after and everything else. When After Pentecost, when, when, when Jesus says, hang tight, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and after that, you're going to be able to do a whole bunch of stuff in ministry. And I don't really want you even to try anything until you get that. And and so I would say, I would say just a little bit further, because I know this will be a confusing thing for people. There is no salvation unless you have the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the definition of salvation in a sense, is that now God is dwelling in your heart and is now changing you from the inside out. That happens to every single believer, uh, regardless. That's that that's the difference, is that God now is dwelling in our in our bodies and is changing us from the inside out. Okay? That's that's Christianity. Know you not that the one who is in you is stronger than the one who is in the world, and I could Know you not that your body is a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. But that indwelling of the Holy Spirit is an automatic thing. The, the question is um, being, being having having somebody pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit or or praying for gifts of the Holy Spirit um, are kind of like a dial in a sense. I, I, I see it like some people can have that dial all the way cranked up, um, and they can pray and ask for that. And other people, but nobody that is a Christian is on zero. And I'm going to read as we get into the actual question of speaking in tongues a little bit about this. That will help to clarify a, a bit the point that gifts of the Spirit, particularly, well, all of them, uh, whether it's the gift of teaching, the gift of uh, prophecy, the gift of speaking in tongues, are requests that you can make to God. That you can earnestly plead for these gifts, um, and he will give them to you because of your earnest asking for them. 
And that, I guess, moves us on to the second question, which I guess will just be part of this first question, which is about speaking in tongues. Because we need to clarify some stuff, because anytime this kind of idea is mentioned, people are conjuring up ideas of weird Pentecostal churches in America, or basically in Africa is the exact same thing. Pentecostal churches have been exported there, and I'm not saying Pentecostal churches are, are uh, let's just talk about it a little bit. So, Pentecostalism is a is a denomination. It's not a it's not a way of life or anything. It's not. I mean, it is that too. But what I'm trying to say is it is your alternative to cessationism is not the Pentecostal Church. The Pentecostal Church is just a denomination that has a background and people involved with it, and you know, a board of elders and stuff like that. That's you know not. They just are people that don't believe in cessationism and actively, you know, have do- they have doctrines about needing to speak in the in tongues in order to be saved, which is completely nonsense. And uh, but because of their false doctrine about that, they teach you have to speak in the tongues in order, speak in tongues in order to be saved. That's a real that has caused more problems than anything else in terms of making it all look stupid, um, because. What you have now is you have a culture in that little church and really in the whole big denomination that that is either because that's the way that, you know, if you were in a family that said, you know, you know, you really kind of seem saved, but you really haven't spoken in tongues yet. So you're not. Um, we really are praying for you, bud, to be able to, you know, speak in tongues and therefore be saved. That kind of if you want to count, if you want to eventually just conform to the whole thing and look, hey, guys, look, I'm saved. You'll do what they even will teach you to do, which is basically, oh, no, it's easy. You just start with a little babbling and you just work up and throw a this in there and a that in there. And, you you know, you can just sort of work it up there. Basically, they're teaching people to fake it in a lot of cases. And if it, even if they're not teaching somebody to fake it, it's almost guaranteed that a lot of them are just faking it or imitating it. Uh, if, if, and, and so part of that is just a bunch of people trying to conform to their culture of churchianity and this doctrine the false doctrine of you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved so we're like okay well then we better start making this happen then because we don't we want to go to the church picnic and we want to make sure that you know we're in line for whatever the eldership or the deaconship or whatnot so i better get to babbling a little bit now on this other side of that coin there are really great pentecostal churches that are truly being biblical about it if you, if somebody in in a sense if somebody really wanted to just do what the bible said and you were looking for a church because you wanted to go do church it's highly likely that you'd pretty much have to go to a pentecostal church to even get anywhere close to it just because they're the only ones that really openly say you know it's okay to do this now they do everything wrong that paul said to do in first corinthians 14 he's like please stop speaking in tongues in a church i would rather speak five words in a, in a, in English or when he was speaking Greek or Hebrew I'd rather speak five language words in a Hebrew tongue than 10,000 in tongues stop doing that in church is basically Paul's point to the to the Corinthians um and I'll get into that in a minute but the point is everybody's doing it wrong but at the same time they are at least saying that that it is possible so the other side to that is that there are genuine believers in this churchianity churchianity culture of pentecostalism that are earnestly praying to god for the gift of tongues 
real believers that are really saved because they came to a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they repented and they were born again, yet they're still in this sort of culture of Pentecostalism where, and they may have not spoken in tongues and they may get convicted about that because of the fear of man and everybody telling them, oh, well, you didn't speak in tongues. Well, you're not really saved and da, da, da. And it's got to be like, and they're all burdened about it because of this false thing. So they get down and they pray and pray, God, please, 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 please give me the gift of tongues. And God, in his mercy, gives them the gift of tongues. So so we can't say that everybody that speaks in tongues in the Pentecostal church is faking it or whatever, because there is probably, I don't know the numbers, but there's a lot of people that general, genuinely are as well. Okay? And uh, I also know cases of people that are I mean, are absolutely trustworthy to the to the gills about this stuff. Are not Pentecostal or part of anything, but you know they were they you know were given the gift of tongues that were, uh, and they began to speak speak in tongues at different points or whatever important points in their life or whatever. I mean, this is this is a real thing that does happen for real. It's not all fake, and and we certainly should never say it's all demonic. That is going to a place that is dangerous almost to say that it's demonic. Um, so we need to just we need to sort of come to a middle ground and understand the dynamics at play with this difficult thing that that is the bible is clear that it exists the only hope that you can have if you want to go with uh is a cessationist thing oh yeah it existed it's all you know existing no problem with that the bible says it but it stopped that's the best hope that you can have if you're really really wanting to run away from any possibility of anything that might uh, look look a little outside the box. But let me read a little bit. Let's talk about the speaking of tongues thing in some depth because this is the part where I have changed my mind, I think, uh, recently about the question is, is the gift of tongues a human language like a person that doesn't know Spanish begins to speak Spanish for the purpose of preaching to somebody like on a mission trip or something like I didn't know Spanish but I went to South America and God gave me the gift of tongues and I was able to preach the gospel to these people these this particular version would point to for example uh, in Pentecost when the the believers there began to speak in tongues and they spoke in the languages of the people that were gathered around them, which, of course, it was it was a trip to Jerusalem from of all the Jews from everywhere, all around, and they spoke different languages and they could understand them in their own language. Okay, so that is a big proof text for that. It goes into the idea that um, that the word tongue essentially just means another language. I mean, it's the it's the word for tongue, and it's used a lot of times to just speak of languages. So. So they'll say, um, you know, the speaking of tongues is not just some, you know, babbling thing that nobody understands for nobody's good. It is used for, uh, it's a, it's, it's used for preaching and, and, and it's in a human language of some sort. And that's the view that I pretty much have held, uh, for a while. Be, uh, and I basically held it in part because of Acts 2. With the, with, but but also with uh, with Pentecost and those guys standing around, and also because it just seemed a lot, um, it seemed to distance itself a lot from those people that were just babbling 
uh, and of course, as we've been talking about, a lot of those people just babbling are uh, faking it or whatever anyway for their own purposes. Um, anyhow, so I wanted to distance myself from that. But the thing is that I kept hearing a lot of reports and stuff from people that were not like that. You know, genuine stuff that was happening to people that didn't quite fit into that box. And that's one thing you could say experientially. It's not really not really that much uh, 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 proof about anything. I myself have never spoken in tongues, um, so I don't have anything to go on there. I've never asked God to be able to speak speak in tongues. I've never. I don't know. I, if like a lot of people out there, I don't know if I. I, I don't know. I guess I'm sort of scared of it. I guess, but of course, God's not going to give me anything I'm scared of, and unless I, you know, or whatever. I mean, I certainly haven't asked him for it, and that's what I think in the verses that we're going to read, we're going to hear, is a, a big part of this. So, anyway, one of the things we need to read, if we're going to talk about the gift of tongues and the nature of it in the New Testament, we need to read 1 Corinthians 14. So, let's pull it up here, and um, this is what it says. I'm just going to read it verse by verse and comment on it a little bit. It says, in the first verse, 1 Corinthians 14.1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Okay, first a little context. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church who is a little, gone a little off stray, I mean off, off the reservation in a little bit, a bit because they, they're using a genuine gift of tongues. Paul never questions whether or not their gift of tongues is genuine, but, but he, he's saying that they are doing it in the church service. Like a guy is just standing up and, you know, speaking at length in, uh, in, in tongues and then other people are standing up and doing that as well. And we don't get the idea that it's all happening at the same time or whatever. I guess to a degree that's happening as well. I don't know if, if everybody was doing it at the same time or whatever. But we do know the basics that people were making speaking in tongues a prominent part of the church service. And Paul's main message here is do not do that. Okay, So that's the context of 1 Corinthians 14. And he starts out, as we said, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Okay, so first, in the first verse, he says to desire spiritual gifts. This is a difficult thing for all of those out there that are absolutely anti you know, the charismatic movement is destroying the world and whatever. Look, the charismatic movement, as as defined earlier by the, the, the kooky things that are going on that are unbiblical, sure, that that's bad and whatever. It's not obviously biblical and it's kooky and all that other stuff. But, but here we're told to desire spiritual gifts. He is talking about the gift of prophecy and, in context, obviously the gift of tongues as well as the other spiritual gifts that he's mentioned in context in First Corinthians. So he is telling you to pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, he's going to build this case that prophecy is at least edifying. Prophecy is in a, a language that people can understand. If you prophesy in a church, you are helping everybody and they're getting built up. That's what he's saying here, his main point, as we'll see, about the thing that you should desire way more than tongues is prophecy. Okay, so he continues. Uh, again, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks 
mysteries. Okay, now this is a tough one for me who used to hold to the idea that it, the exact opposite of what Paul's saying here. That is, that speaking in tongues was not for God, but it's for man. It's for it's to preach the gospel to man, and it is it is something that men understand because obviously, if I'm speaking in Spanish to Spanish people for the purpose of preaching to them, then they will, um, you know, they will obviously understand it. That's the purpose. But here we're told the opposite. It says, "For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. No one understands him." Um, however, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Now, here's an interesting part about this. If we look um, at the places, for example, in Acts 2 and Acts 10, where people were speaking in tongues, it actually says that what they were doing in Pentecost was essentially praising God. They were speaking to God. That is to say that that what is going to be developing here is that um, when people are speaking in tongues, they are praying to God and praising God, and that it's not addressed to man or intended for man. However, the interpretation of that prophecy can, in fact, interpret that prophecy and be edifying, but that interpretation will be associated or, or about that praise or prayer to God. Does that, does that make sense? I'm going to build the case by doing nothing more than reading this passage and talking a little bit about it. But first, let's read uh, in Acts 2.11. Okay. Um, in Acts 2.11, let's just go there to get the context a little bit better. It says, let's start at 7. Then we were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? We're not told what they're hearing. We're just told that they are hearing it in their own language. Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, adjoining uh, Cyrian visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, we're told what they were saying. They were praising God for his works. Okay, They weren't even preaching the gospel to these people. They weren't saying Jesus died, rose again on the third day, and all these other things to him. They were saying the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Okay, We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like those mockers that saying these guys are full of new wine or heaven forbid that they are demon possessed. Okay, so um so that's 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 an interesting thing, first Corinthians four two, but let's continue. Well, there's another one. Um just to kind of build the case here of that idea. Acts ten forty six says, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Here again, the speaking of tongues is expressly said here to be magnifying God. Okay, so and that goes exactly in line with what Paul is saying. You know, because First Corinthians fourteen two is exactly the opposite of the previous view that I believe. That is to say, that uh, tongues was just a human language for um, preaching the gospel to different people groups. Um, people will say, "Oh, well, Paul was speaking this mockingly." In, in, in essence, they're saying that we're to take the exact opposite of what Paul said. With, with, and that's a problematic position because Paul goes on to reiterate this 
and it lines up with the other scriptures. So if we're going to say, hey, look at that verse, that's nice. Paul was just kidding. It's actually the opposite. That's a dangerous kind of hermeneutic to have because that can be a slippery slope into just about anything that we want to believe that the Bible is not trying to teach. We can flip it around and say the opposite. That's not the way to interpret the Bible. Um, so again, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all, I wish you all spoke with tongues. Okay. So here's an interesting thing. I wish you all spoke with tongues. This is going to the first part of the verse where he says, but he wishes that you should desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So they didn't all, we're going to find out they don't all prophesy, but he's saying that you should try, you should ask and desire for it. And now he's saying, I wish that you all spoke with tongues. He's certainly not saying, I wish that you all were saved to, to those people that say that you got to speak in tongues to be saved. There's so many ways to refute that, but this is just one of them. Um, but anyway, so I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Okay. So here, what he's saying is that the only, the, the reason that the only thing that could be on par with prophesying in terms of tongues is the guy who is interpreting tongues. Okay. Cause another spiritual gift is the interpretation of tongues. And if that interpretation of tongues happens in a church service, then that could possibly possibly edify the church because they would understand it, um, as opposed to something that's just hearing some babbling that they don't understand. Paul will develop this. He says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation or knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue uh, words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I don't know the meaning of a language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is fruitful. Okay, so... He's saying if you're going to speak in tongues, you at least should have the gift of interpretation so that it might interpret, so that it might edify and make you grow in, uh, in godliness. And he keeps hammering the point here that spiritual, the spiritual gift of tongues is not understandable without the gift of interpretation. I'm going to continue reading a few verses because it just answers this question so much better than I could. He says, um, I think, my God, that I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I might teach others also than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be childish in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. 
Therefore tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So he's saying that prophesying will edify people because they will understand it. He continues, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convicted by all. He is convinced by all. Actually, he says it that reverse. He is convinced by all, or, and he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And then he goes on, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Again, here we have Paul saying that the speaking of tongues is it's reiteration that it is something between man and God. Let him go home, do it in silent by himself and to God. In that sense, the speaking of tongues could make no real sense if, if we're talking about being able to speak Spanish in a, on the mission field. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't do that, um, but I'm not saying that that's what we what what is being taught here in First Corinthians as the gift of tongues. Uh, that that's certainly a miracle that God probably has done countless times, but it is not necessarily what the gift of tongues is for, according to this passage and others. So, in summing up, it's kind of a middle-of-the-road thing. The charismatic movement obviously has a bunch of, you know, that title for what people refer to as the charismatic movement almost certainly is all, you know, wacky. And there, and even the stuff that I wouldn't call the charismatic movement, just standard, you know, Pentecostalism, churchianity stuff, a lot of that stuff is broken and not theologically correct either. But that doesn't mean that their main bag is is incorrect. That is to say that the gifts of the Spirit are for today and that they should be a part of it. Obviously, they're doing most everything wrong that we just read in 1 Corinthians 14. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean, as 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, that you shouldn't desire spiritual gifts, such as speaking in tongues. Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. But, but he's saying in this context not to do it in the church. Um, so, so yeah, we should desire spiritual gifts of all, of all types. We have that as a gift. It's a really good gift that we can use, not just for the edification of people, but also for the edification of ourselves, as it says the, the gift of tongues uh, is used for. So, with that, we'll move on to question number two. Question number two comes from Greg, and he asks... Another topic I believe your listeners would be interested in is the role of preparing for the coming storm. In my mind, it's silly to see a coming catastrophe and not make basic preparations in terms of food, water, self-defense, etc. That's not to override our trust and dependency on the Lord. There are verses that seem to support the don't worry about it view and the gird your loins view. You recently moved to a rural area, and I assume that's related to this topic. Is small-scale farming and basic resilience planning biblical? Thanks, Greg. Okay, this is a really good question, and I think that it is best answered in two different ways. The first is regarding just 
basic prudent preparation based on what we know and think we know about what is going on with the world and you know what's going on with the whatever food supply or economy or you know deteriorating liberties and these kinds of things the the that kind of stuff that you can see coming um i think is is good to prepare to a degree of course and some of you may have it on your hearts to prepare to a greater degree than just a little bit uh, I think it's a good investment either way to have a little bit of food stored up, whether I, I've said on this show before about two weeks is at least, I think, you know, especially if you live in a city because, and the thing that I was thinking about is if you have a basic disaster happen, whether that's a massive tornado, hurricane, earthquake, something like that that could happen to a city, the water supply gets, you know, historically taken out one of the first thing that things that go and then of course if that's going to be out for a prolonged period of time and depending on the disaster if there are roadblocks or uh, ways that you can't really get out of the city that well depending on the number numerous scenarios that could happen just in something relatively normal like a, a natural disaster then it's good to have not just water well, water would be good. Two weeks supply of water would be great. But also, uh, one alternative is just a, a way to filter water that can filter even, you know, stagnant water in your creek or pond or anything that you could get to uh, if you needed to. So I think that for that reason, it's it's really just a smart thing to do. Like you do other smart things in your life, that would be a good smart thing to do is to to make sure you have. A good backup plan, and I think that there, you know, also that includes having like, uh, I think the government even, you know, recommends having something like that, like a go pack, you know, a backpack filled up with what you need to just throw in the car and go if for if for whatever reason you need needed to do that. There's a lot of things like that that I would just file under prudent, um, and that is one of the reasons that we moved out here is to be able to have a garden, although, you know, we don't really believe that we can actually, at this point, sustain ourselves in any kind of meaningful way with it. Although, I think that having a garden and having the kind of ability to have whatever, chickens or something like that, to me, that's like, I don't know if I would feel, I think I would feel that way even if I didn't know anything about the New World Order or even was a Christian. I think that I would probably think that there's a certain part of me that kind of wishes that we would get back to knowing more stuff about farming or raising animals or those kinds of things. I think it's important because we have forgotten a lot of that stuff. And there's a certain part of me that just is drawn to to the country. And I think that um, that's more a decision based on my personal preference. But certainly it has application to the idea of, like I said, I mean, it's better not be in a city in the event of a natural disaster if you can help it but at the same time if you're in a city it, that might be the best place for you for various reasons that might be safer it's in your situation with your family or what have you or your job or whatnot there are a million reasons why it's better for people to be in the city than maybe in the rural area uh and you know whatever natural disaster might not happen to your city or it might not even affect you or whatever there's a lot of reasons that it's uh, either Here's, I guess, the bottom line is that if you feel convicted that you need to go to a city or move to the rural area 
for some kind of reason because God's saying to do it. Similarly, if he's saying to build a, a, a you know a food pantry or a food shelter, then you need to be attentive to that. Um, but here's the flip side of this coin. When we're talking about the biblical end times, I think we're talking about something different. I don't think that there is a bunker deep enough or a food supply big enough to prepare for that necessarily. Um, I, I want to be careful about that because I do think that that God probably has put on people's hearts to to prepare for that and even even to prepare massive things for the church during that time. I'm sure He's got wheels in motion and putting stuff on people's hearts to 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 for that time period. But for the most part, it's not something that you're you're not going to coast through the the tribulation because you got some uh, you know whatever they call I can't remember the brand name of that food that they sell in Alex Jones or 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 a Berkey water filter that's not going to get you through the great tribulation it's 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 going to be a really well thought out way to to get Christians out in the open and uh and round it up I mean there's not with the technology that we have today there's not a lot of places to run you know if I I certainly don't think, you know, moving out here in the rural area, I mean, at the very least, if, if something like that of biblical proportions happened, I mean, it might buy me a few extra days or weeks, but it's not going to make any significant change. There is nowhere to run, no country small enough or remote enough for, I think, what's coming. The technology is too good. He is too dedicated to the cause. That is, the Antichrist is too dedicated to finding us. Um, and making sure that we are found, in addition to everybody hating us, is what Jesus says that that's going to be a component of this. That everybody, nobody, everybody's going to be so afraid of us because we are like the terrorist times a million. You know, somehow or some way, that's going to happen to where you know families are going to give up families, and brothers are going to give up brothers, and mothers are going to give up sons, and the whole thing else that he says. So. So it's just going to be an extremely difficult situation, and it's not going to be like you're in your house, uh, you know, and, and just chilling. I mean, there will be, I'm sure, some people that make it uh, like that or a similar situation. I don't know what it's going to be like, but when you really get down to it, um, no, there isn't anything to prepare for for that. What I would recommend for somebody with that is is Charles Cooper and his work. Okay, here's a guy that has been talking for, you know, decades about the fact that the Bible teaches that the church will in fact go through the persecution of antichrist, that is the great tribulation, the that will begin at the midpoint of the three and a half years and will we will be raptured at some point after that. It could be hours, it could be years, but we don't know the length of time that we will have to endure the wrath of of, of antichrist and his um, persecution of us, but we will be raptured out of that persecution, and then God will begin the so-called Day of the Lord, which is the destruction of the wicked, uh, which will constitute the trumpets and bowls of the book of Revelation. We will not go through that. We're not going through, like the first trumpet is, I think a third of the green grass is destroyed, and you know, at some point all the green grass is destroyed during the trumpets and bowls. I mean, we're not going through that stuff. That stuff is biblical wrath of God stuff. If you're saved, you're out of there before the day of the Lord happens. But we got to go through the the first part of it. And so as Charles Cooper's been preaching this for a long time, he's obviously been getting the questions, well, what do we do? What do we do? How do we endure this? 
And his answer is obviously this has burdened him greatly. He wrote a book about it called Fight, Flight, or Faith. The thesis of the book is essentially there's nowhere to fly. There's no, there's no, no reason to fight. There's nothing, no, you won't win if you do fight. And the Bible tells us not to anyway in terms of he goes through exactly what he means by that. But fight, flight, or faith. Obviously, the answer is faith. But what he means by that is brought out in that book. But if you are interested in that right now, he is actually going through a series. He may have just completed it uh, called Faith for the Final. It's a video series he's been doing on YouTube. Uh, I am, I've already got permission to turn those into MP3s and put them on the uh, Revelations Radio Network. I've been uh, so busy lately with so many different projects and stuff. I haven't even had time to uh, get those off o- online and, and get them to MP3. If somebody can do that for me, I would really appreciate it. If you can send me an email and say, hey, I'll download those videos off YouTube and turn them into MP3s and then send you a zip file or whatever with the MP3s, well, that would be a real big blessing for me. Uh, anyway, so there is this uh, this video series he's got out there called Faith for the Final, and it goes through the kind of things that we need to exercise for the for the end. The muscles that we need to exercise are those that I was talking about in the first part of this. You know how miracles right now don't happen because we don't need God. Well, we're going to be kind of like the early church that was running around being persecuted and killed by at that point early on it was Jerusalem and and the, the Jews were, were killing them. Uh, and they were, you know, enemy number one. They were hiding everywhere they they went, and miracles were happening. You know, angels were breaking them out of prison, and as I mentioned, you know, all that kind of stuff was happening in that context. That's the kind of stuff that's going to be happening in these end times when we're back to the place where our only hope is God, and our only hope is prayer, and our only hope is faith. You know, so much of the Bible, and this really hit me in Africa because, um, you know, they talk a lot about faith, kind of the word of faith stuff. And I talked about this to a degree after I got back from Africa. So much word of faith is is, is kind of kooky and wrong and, and not biblical. But at the same time, it's based on something very, very true that a lot of places in the Bible, in fact, in the entire Bible almost could be said as the story of people who had faith. And because of their faith, faith they saw God work. Faith, you know, in a lot of ways, the miracles of God are contingent upon faith. I mean, that's just a biblical thing you really can't get around. I mean, how, you probably think of at least three things that Jesus said off the top of your head that had something to do with if we had faith, blank, you know, what we could do. So, and, you know, talking about people's faith and whatever, that's, he was serious about that stuff. So, so there's enough material there to say the least to, to fill out this, this series that Cooper is doing called Faith for the Final. Highly recommend it. It'll be on the Revelations Radio Network soon, so stay tuned to that. Subscribe on iTunes if you're interested. So, uh, to sum up what I'm saying here, yes, it's great to be prudent. Get some food stored up in your go bags and your uh, um, and whatever else that you are convicted that you need to keep you and your family safe for a short time, a long time, whatever. It is, I think, a prudent idea to move the country if you can do it. Uh, but at the same time, it may not be the right move for like a majority of you. So do not take my word for it unless you hear it from God or you are super convic- convic- convinced by that or convicted. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, do not in any way think that that's going to protect you from the coming storm biblically or the Antichrist persecution or whatever. There is no hope for you there except for God. It's your only hope. And things are going to be different there. And you don't want to have to like learn to have faith in God 
when you you know you want to already get a jump start on that if you can build those muscles up and so that's uh, Cooper's burden after years and years and thinking about well what do we do now how do I help people uh, you know after you know showing them the what the Bible says about that we are going to have to deal with this his burden of after all those years is we gotta teach him to have faith and that's how we're going to to get through this and get through it brilliantly. It's going to be a great thing. I think that that's the whole point of this whole thing is that we are going to do more evangelism in this latter time, when time when we're on the run, being persecuted and being killed. Miracles are going to be happening and people are going to be coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ during that time. And I think a lot of people are going to get saved. Um, and I guess that's it for that one. Let's move on quickly to question number three. Question three is one that I got from a number of people about the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7. If you're familiar with this, there is a chapter, there's a number of places in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, where 144,000 people are mentioned. And because they're mentioned in a good light, a lot of folks want to make that be representative of either Christians or uh, their particular group or what have you. But the 144,000 are explicitly said to be Jews from 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we'll talk about what, what that means. Um, I think that the explicit teaching of Scripture is that they are Jews from 12 different tribes. It says in Revelation, uh, let's see, starting in Revelation 7, 3, uh, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, and it goes on, talks about Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Zebulon, on and on and on. Joseph, 12,000 were sealed of each of these tribes. So the Bible spends a lot of time talking, almost making sure that you don't have a way out of these must be speaking of 12,000 Jews from each tribe, okay? This, on its face, is a complete crushing blow to anybody that says that dispensationalism doesn't exist. That is to say that God dispensationalism just means that God is not done with the Jews yet. To them, I would reference them to Romans chapter 11 anyway. But, of course, if this is in context happening in the end times, and God is all, all of a sudden doing something with these Jewish men, then obviously he's not done with the Jews. He's about to finish what he promised all in the Old Testament. So, yeah, those those promises are really promises and he's really going to fulfill them. As Paul says, that until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, is that's when he's going to be dealing with the Jewish people again. So, at this point is when we see this happening, I think. Um, we There are a lot of groups that say there's something to do with Christians or whatever, but it it's important to realize this is an allegorical speech. You know, he's not saying... It was as if they were from the tribe of Judah, or as if they were from the tribe of Asher. And so commentators that try to make this be the church are in a very weak position, because they essentially have to say, yeah, the Bible spent a whole bunch of time saying a bunch of stuff that, well, isn't true, because, well, I don't believe that. So it's not true. And that's just, again, as we discussed earlier, a bad place to be in terms of Bible interpretation. you got to just, just, if the Bible says it, 
and, and it doesn't give you a way to allegorize it. It's not saying these people were like Jews or whatever. It's saying these people are Jews and there's 12,000 of them. Hey, there's 12,000 Jews from each tribe getting sealed on their foreheads. I mean, that's what it says. You can choose now to believe the Bible or not believe the Bible, but that's what the Bible is telling you. Um, now, we are given more information about these guys later on. Now, this is contextually, I believe, directly after the rapture. The rapture happens in the previous chapter, um, in, in, in the sixth seal, but, but uh, this is now what we see afterwards. Hal Lindsey has said for years and years and years, since his late Great Planet Earth book, that these 144,000 Jews are Jewish evangelists. The idea is that after the rapture, there is then these 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 guys here who will go out in the world and because in his view um there isn't these guys all become christians right after the rapture and the, and so these guys got to go out and preach the gospel but there is a, a ton of problems with that first of all it never says that at all it never it never not only it's not an explicit teaching. It never says these guys are evangelists in any way, shape, or form, but it actually says the opposite. These guys are protected and hidden away for the entire time. They are not allowed... They are actually taken and hidden away, obviously not sent forth to go out to the whole world. So it's the opposite happening with these guys. They aren't evangelizing anybody. I'm not saying that people don't get evangelized. I do think a lot of people get saved after the rapture, but it's not these guys that do it. Um... At least if, if these guys do it, it's not said here in Scripture. Let's say it like that. We get more information about these guys about seven chapters later in Revelation 14. This is after um, basically the reclamation period has already happened. Christ is now taking back everything. He's not quite done with pouring out the entire last bit of wrath that needs to happen on a few different items need to be wrapped up. But he is now, at this point, completely reclaimed uh, the earth, essentially. Uh, and I'll have to uh, you know, make another pass at this just to make sure, but I'm pretty sure that's what's happening at this point after the uh, seventh trumpet. And he says, Then I look, look, and behold, a lamb standing on the Mount Zion, with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their forehead. So he, we have the same guys here again seven chapters later. We know it's them. There's 144,000 of them, and they have their father's name written on their foreheads. And we were told back there in Revelation 7 that these were the number, the only number of those guys that got the seal on their foreheads were these guys, okay? And so here they are, got seals on foreheads, 144,000. These are the same dudes. Um, so Revelation 14.4, a few verses later, we get some more information. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These are redeemed among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Okay, so this is an interesting thing. I'm not exactly sure uh, how this choosing went about. And on one hand, these, these Jews seem to be Christians. At least now they're Christians. They're with the Lamb. They are following the Lamb wherever he goes. This kind of language gives us that kind of... Uh, and they could essentially be the Jewish Christians that were sealed, I suppose, uh, but that's not at all clear. One thing that is clear is that they are chosen uh, by their tribes. I think that's important to remember because that's going to be incredibly important as we progress. But uh, for other reasons, they, they didn't have any deceit in their mouth. 
They were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. So they had a few qualifications like this that were sort of, I guess you could say, virtuous in nature. Don't now they're they're not saved by their works by any means, but I think that these guys were chosen in this virtuous way for a particular purpose. What I'm going to tell you that these 144,000 are are is essentially what it says here. They are the first fruits of saved Israel that will then be a major player part in the millennial period. Uh, the the main thing you need to know about this is found in Ezekiel. I talk a lot about the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. I find them to be fascinating chapters, really hard read, very rarely studied. But in some people like Josephus and others have said that 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 those last nine chapters of Ezekiel were actually a second book of Ezekiel. That is to say, at a completely separate time, Ezekiel published the last nine chapters of Ezekiel that we get, you know, right after everybody's favorite, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Well, Ezekiel 40 through 48 um, were said by Josephus, or we think is said by Josephus, to be a separate book. Which is which makes sense because it's it's one whole theme. It never deviates or goes to a different time. It's all about what we would call the millennium. Every bit of those chapters is about the millennium, and it gives us, I mean, a ton of details about what the city looks like, what the layout of the land looks like, how it's all going to work, and the methodology of what the world is going to look like when Messiah is here and ruling from the earth. Jerusalem will have a new name. It's going to be called Yahweh Shema. The, the city, the temple is going to be the size of us, uh, of the entire current city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is going to be nine times its current size. It's going to be on a hill. And here's the part that's relevant to the 144,000. There is a complete difference in the, you know how in the Old Testament, the tribes were designated, uh, if you've ever seen a little map where this part was given to the tribe of Benjamin, this part was given to the tribe of Judah, you know, Judah, Jerusalem was in Judah and all that kind of stuff. And they're kind of just like blotches, <coughs> excuse me, blotches all over the map. Not in the millennial period. In the millennial period, there is going to be a very structured layout that Israel is once again going to be divided according to... Uh, um, the borders are going to be divided according to tribes. So you could turn to and just read the last chapter if you want to learn more about this. Ezekiel 48. Okay, It says, Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hethlon and the entrance of Hamath to the Hazra Enon on the border of Damascus northward in the direction of Hamath. There shall be one section for Dan from its east to the west side. From by the border of Dan from the east to the side to the west from one section of Asher. And it goes on a lot of technical stuff. It says, like, for example, uh, by the border of Judah from the east side to the west shall there be a district which you shall set apart 25,000 cubits in width and in length and the same as one of the other portions from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the center. The district you shall set apart for that. I mean, it's got a lot of cubits and stuff, you know, and none of this stuff has ever happened before ever. Okay. Um, and it's, if you see this on a map, you can start to see, okay, th this is all going to be completely redrawn. Like, this is a thing that trips up a lot of uh, Jews because they're like, well, this has never happened, but this is the core belief of their belief that Messiah is w going to one day come back. Like, when Messiah is going to come back one day, they're looking for Ezekiel 48 to be the, the way that everything's going to be. You know, they, they know about Ezekiel 48 and that they know that what they got right now or what they had in the past is not what that is. That's one of the core beliefs that Messiah has not come yet, and their view 
even though they are unaware of how Isaiah 53 works and that he had to come as a suffering servant beforehand. Nevertheless, uh, so what I'm trying to say is they're expecting it and we're expecting it too. Uh, we're expecting Ezekiel 48 to happen. So what I'm suggesting here is that the 144,000 are a kind of priest class and uh, of Jews, there's going to be other people saved during the 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 day of the Lord. Not just these 144,000 Jews, uh, but in addition, there's going to be one third of national Israel that's going to make it out alive. So there, these aren't even the only Jews. There's going to be another one third of of Jews are going to survive through the 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 day of the Lord. That's called the day of Jacob's trouble because they actually, unlike Christians who get raptured out before that, they actually go through it. Uh, and one-third of them make it out alive. There are other people, of course, that make it out alive. I would submit that those who are resurrected, um, that have been beheaded, those guys are actually resurrected, um, and I don't want to go into too much detail about all this stuff, but the, the what the Bible calls the first resurrection. It says this is the first resurrection, and it's talking about people that were beheaded during the day of the Lord. And it's kind of confusing the way it says that, but what it is, it's referring to Daniel and the, there's two resurrections, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Those guys that have been beheaded during the day of the Lord are the final completion of the entire resurrection of the just. Because everybody else had been resurrected before. I mean, obviously, they're not the first resurrection. Jesus was the first resurrection. And then after that, you know, you could even make a case for some other people that were part of that resurrection. But then, of course, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will after them. And then, after we're already gone, and then the day of the Lord progresses, those that are killed in the day of the Lord will still be part of our Christian family. Those guys actually get resurrected before the millennium starts, and then it appears that they actually help populate the millennium along with other people. So they complete the resurrection of the just. They have resurrected bodies. Although, I would, wouldn't be surprised if they actually are just resurrected uh, and become a part of our family in, in heaven or whatever, since they now have resurrected bodies. But that, when it says the first, this is the first resurrection, it's essentially saying this is the completion of, of the first resurrection, that is to say, Daniel's resurrection of the, quote, just. The only other resurrection, the second resurrection that is left, is the resurrection of the unjust. That resurrection doesn't happen for another thousand years. It happens after the end of the millennium. Then all that are dead in their sins will be literally resurrected, given resurrected bodies, for the purpose of judgment and then punishment. So so it's a little bit of a complicated thing there. didn't mean to get into too much detail there. All that to say that there's going to be a, lot, a diverse group. In addition, there's probably going to be other people that were there that will populate the millennium, for example. Um, when people go to the Battle of Armageddon, it's actually, there's probably going to be people alive after that that were either saved or unsaved or what have you. And I think that's what the sheep and goat judgment is after that is, is I don't want to go into too much detail about all this. Other I'll only say that there, in addition to the 144,000 that make it into the millennium without ever going to heaven or being resurrected, they literally are preserved through it all for the purpose of being a part of that Ezekiel 48 thing. Uh, they And I think here's a, some wisdom in this too. I'm sure there's a ton of wisdom in it if God's doing it. But, but right now, it would be difficult for huma humanity to sort of choose which guys are part of which tribe or whatever, because we've lost a lot of that knowledge, what with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and a lot of people's genealogies, with the possible exception of the Levites uh, and and the, the Aaronic priesthood, who still maintain their knowledge of their tribal um, 
you know, positions really well. Here we have actually God choosing them out. You guys are Dan, you guys are Nephtali, you guys are Manasseh. And he preserves them through this time for the purpose of in his kingdom. And what Ezekiel describes via the spirit of prophecy, which is Jesus Christ himself, you know, essentially telling us what's going to happen in the future. Ezekiel 48 shows us that it's going to be divided once again, at least Israel, not the whole world, but the but Israel will be divided according to these tribes. So he essentially plugs these guys into their respective tribes and voila, you know, you have this whole thing set up without a whole lot of uh, need for, okay, line up who's of the tribe of this thing and who's of the tribe of that thing. It's already set up. Jesus himself has decided who is and who isn't a part of that tribe and, and it gets everything ready and to roll after the uh, restoration period after the uh, Battle of Armageddon. Okay, I know that sounds quite complicated, um, but it's really not that complicated. I, I hope that uh, you followed it and I hope I haven't bored you to tears here. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, of course, go to the websites. Just Google Nowhere to Run Chris White or go to Ancient Aliens Debunked, BibleProphecyTalk.com or the Facebook. Hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.